you're very welcome to this evening's launch of a history of Irish women's poetry, a groundbreaking and comprehensive new account of Irish women's poetry from earliest times to the present day in both English and Irish. Here at Molly, we're delighted to host this event in partnership with the Embassy and Consulates General of Ireland in the UK. My name is Simon O'Connor. I'm the director here at Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. We're located on Dublin St. Stephen's Green. Um, don't forget, we are open uh, now, six days a week, Tuesday to Sunday from 10.30am to 6pm, uh, with late opening on Thursdays until 7.30pm. So do pop in, uh, visit us soon and, and say hello if you're passing. Um, this evening, we're very fortunate to be joined by the book's editors, Alva Darcy and David Wheatley, and they'll be in conversation with Professor Sarah Prescott, who is the Dean and Principal of the College of Arts and Humanities at UCD. And we'll also uh, get the opportunity to hear readings from poets Kieran A. and Rachel Hegarty. So a really fantastic evening in store um, and a big thank you in advance to all of our speakers and, of course, our friends in the Embassy and Consulates General. If you do enjoy tonight's program i'd encourage you to make a donation to the museum so molly depends on donations to help us continue to deliver our ambitious program to audiences at home and abroad in person and online so if you would like to make a donation which would be most valuable um, you can visit molly.ie forward slash support uh, to find out more but that is enough from me i'm going to hand you over to denise hanrahan consul general of ireland in cardiff to introduce our speakers and we hope you enjoy the evening. Thank you. Thank you Simon and welcome to all of you. Thank you for joining us this evening. My name is Denise Sanrahan. I'm the Consul General of Ireland in Cardiff and it's a really great honour on behalf of the Embassy of Ireland to the UK and our now three Consulates General in Cardiff, Edinburgh and Manchester to be partnering with the wonderful Museum of Literature Ireland for this evening's launch of a history of Irish women's poetry. The co-editors of this groundbreaking collection of critical essays, Alva Darcy and David Wheatley, are poets and academics in their own right, each respectively based in Cardiff and in Aberdeen. And I think this really speaks to two of the most important calling cards and strengths that Ireland has internationally, our diaspora and our artists, particularly writers. In the last period, in recent years, we've learned so much about the importance of listening to a diversity of voices be that internationally, in Ireland, society, politically and beyond. We therefore really welcome this history of Irish women's poetry and look forward to an uplifting and really insightful conversation this evening between Alva, David and Sarah Prescott. Over to you. Thank you very much to Simon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, my name is Sarah Prescott, as Simon said, I'm the, the Principal and Dean of the College of Arts and Humanities at uh, University College Dublin and I'm absolutely delighted to be able to be here and, and um, kind of chair the discussion <laughs> between um, Alva and David who are the editors of this fantastic and, as Denise said, really groundbreaking volume of, of critical essays on Irish um, women's poetry and also very honoured to be a contributor myself um, on Anglophone 18th century um, women poets um, uh, in the volume. So, so thank you very much for including me. I'd like to kick off with a, a general question really to you, to you both is just at what point did you decide to do this, to take this on as a, as a project uh, and to edit this book? Uh, and why did you think it was important? What kind of moved you to, to, to do this and to actually go from kind of chatting about it to doing it? And could you also say something, I think, when answering that about how you 
made decisions about the scope of the book, the kind of chronological range, because it's it's a very ambitious volume. And, um, you know, congratulations to you for, for its ambition. It, it works brilliantly. And I also wondered how that scope shaped the story that you could see emerging as you edited the chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, before we answer, can I just say thank you to you as well um, for doing this? It's, it's lovely to have you here and it's it's very much beyond the call of duty um, for a contributor. So, so thank you. Um, and, and I also want to say how exciting it is to be doing this with the book in my hands because um, David and I have done a couple of events um, before this. You've all got the book um, and, and kind of waiting for the book to arrive. So it's here now and that's, and that's a big deal. Um, so I think for, for us, um, the seed of this project was planted um, in, I suppose it was 2017, um, when the Cambridge Companion to Irish Poets was announced and um, the contents page of that volume was um, shared on online and um, people were kind of expressing disappointment at the scope of that volume. Um, so that was a volume that sort of failed to take advantage of the full range of, of scholarship um, done in the field of Irish poetry. Um, it had 30 chapters, um, each dedicated to a, a named poet, and only four of the poets were women. So David and I started corresponding about that volume and about the kind of response to it um, on the literary scene. Um, and one thing I noticed um, myself in that response, and I, I think I myself kind of, um, you know, could be included in this at the time, was that when people named the poets that they thought um, should have been in that book and weren't, um, they tended to always name poets from the 20th and the 21st centuries, um, particularly from kind of um, the emergence of, of Ivan Boland on. Um, so I think um, there's always this kind of reiteration of um, a sort of tokenistic group of, of poets um, and then a loss of, of the fuller, richer um, picture. So um, that was when we kind of realised that there was there was an appetite and need for a volume like this um, that would give a sort of an overview of the full history of Irish women's poetry and would would give it from the earliest times and not just the sort of the most recent bit. Um, so that's at least part of the reason for the kind of ambitious scope, um, which, which, as you say, it, it, go, it sweeps all the way from earliest medieval times um, to the present day. And we wanted to recognise that um, women's poetry making, if it predates um, Ireland, right, it predates the idea of the nation state. Um, and to see women's poetry as um, comprehending an oral tradition as well as a literary one. Um, so, so going beyond um, the story of the nation, going beyond um, kind of the obsession with the published text um, and going beyond the kind of the individual um, sort of genius author um, that we tend to, to value in Ireland particularly. Um, David, what do, what do you want to add to that? I think that any big project like this coming together represents a, a marriage of or an encounter of accident and necessity. I think even before we began, if you imagine it somehow existing like a platonic idea in the ether, then we have to coax it out. Um, you might begin by saying we need to have a chapter on so-and-so, or you might just as easily say we need to have a chapter by so-and-so. What would so-and-so <laughs> like to write? And then you ask them. And they don't give you the obvious answer of the thing they've written, you know, so many times before. They say, in fact, this time around, I'd like to do this instead. And so, you know, we, we do begin with a, a certain contour of what the project is going to look like. But then it it shifts uh, shape and comes into focus in unexpected ways in the act of actually doing it. Sarah, is it okay to 
throw that question back at you and ask you um, as a contributor why you felt like a, a book like this should exist and, and why you wanted to, to contribute your chapter to it. Uh, yeah, well, first of all, I was you know delighted to see that it was it was it was happening and and really thrilled to be to be involved in such an important kind of revisionist project. Um, I think some of the reasons you said it, firstly, I think it, it, it's simply that the book fills a crucial gap or gaps. Um, and, and that's just kind of really obvious um, in our knowledge of, of Irish women's poetry. Like you say, we're either from kind of the 20, 21st century or from the early modern or, or medieval. And what's great about this, it kind of gives you that scope. But it also explores, I think, which was really intriguing, was why those gaps have occurred. Why yeah. those omissions? Why those silencings? Why those silenced, actually? And also kind of thinks about how we might stop that happening again because it's a pattern in women's production, literary production. I won't say writing, because it's not strictly writing as such, where women kind of get recovered and then neglected, then recovered and then neglected. Yes. It's partly about the fragility of manuscript um, and kind of oral transmission, but it is also a critical paradigm that keeps happening. So I kind of I thought that was, you were doing really important revisionist work. And again, I've mentioned the ambitious chronological range, and I thought that was really interesting too. too and what you have there is what I think um, David touched on was the diversity of, of, of subjects and of scholars um, included in it. I mean, the title's um, a history, but it's it's not the history. So I think maybe that's deliberate. It could be many histories or it could be different histories told within one volume, perhaps from more fractured histories to more kind of optimistic, <laughs> looking forward narratives. And I think another really important part of th this work is that is, it's at once an act of revisionist recovery but it's an also an account of the present and a look forward. So it's not this tidy history where you've got mm -hmm. a beginning and end and that's it, that's the narrative, that's the teleology, that's where we've got to. It's a living, breathing continuum as a volume. And I think it's something that should shape the future um, as well as, as, as describe and explore and complicate um, the past as well. And I think you know, the subtitle of um, Anne Mulhall's last chapter which is beyond the now, I think really kind of nicely encapsulates that as well. And I could go on forever, but I think my final observation would be um, that you have poetry produced in Irish and, and in English, and you also explore bilingual literary culture um, as well, because of a history of women's poetry just in English would only be half told um, without the Irish language. And I think the chapters as a whole show how we need to shift away, and this, my chapter sort of talks about this as well, from Anglo-centric paradigms to creating a history that is kind of um, coming out of its particular context rather than being compared to particular critical um, paradigms and I think you talk about that very interestingly in, in the introduction about how sometimes those critical paradigms fit and how sometimes they really might not be helpful so I think that that was that was um, those are some of the reasons why I was so excited. I'm just thrilled to see the, the end result. It's, it's fantastic. But on a related note, uh, Sarah, your chapter is titled Archipelagic Ireland, Women's Anglophone Poetry from the 18th Century. Now, uh, you, you mentioned, I think, uh, the guru of archipelagic studies, John Kerrigan, who uh, I remember writing, I think you may even quote this line, that um, the poetry of the, the nation, like, well, any of these nations uh, can only be or can be best understood in the archipelagic context and uh, we reach the limits, the points at which the nation as narrative simply fails to explain the, the full extent of activity going on in and between Britain, Ireland, England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales at the period. Well, therefore, um, what is a word like Ireland and Irish doing, you know, in, in the titles of these essays and books that we're producing these days? How do we account for that? 
I think, I mean, with the archipelagic approach, I mean, I come at it really, I'm kind of adumbrating this term archipelagic feminism, which would be part of the feminist recovery project, which again is about sort of, um, to put it in very simple terms, being comparative rather than Anglo-centric. I mean, one of the things I always get asked when I was working on Welsh women writers was, is there a Welsh Jane Austen? So I know that's completely the wrong question. I'm not interested in, this, in, in, in a Welsh Jane Austen. I'm interested in actually what that tradition is telling me or what that writing is telling me from that particular context and, and place. And I think in terms of kind of national traditions, when we're talking about kind of pre-nationalism, if you like, um, it's about islands and Irishness and, and very different kind of complexities and plural, pluralities of identity, I yeah. think, it is what comes across here. And that comes across very strongly in the essays as well. It's not just one tradition. It's not just one sure. history. It's a multiplicity of voices. Yeah. And I think that's what the archipelagic frame kind of lets you see. Yeah. I think it's a very good way to have addressing the straw man or a straw woman of the Irish national tradition that we all feel we somehow possess and understand, you know, the Daniel Corkery model. Um, and there we go, these are archipelagic uh, forays. But, um, well, I think a book like this uh, shows the limits of our conventional understanding of what we assume the Daniel Corkery, you know, Irish national narrative actually can do for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that. And, and picking up on that, like, I kind of, we have noticed the the I noticed the key importance of including Irish language women poets in, in that as well. And I think that that shifts those narratives again as well, um, which is really interesting. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more, um, you know, both of you about perhaps talking about a couple of examples of Irish language women poets in the volume that you think particularly kind of stood out for you. Alva, I've been talking. <laughs> <I'd go first>. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, not particular poets so much, but um, uh, um, Danielle Clark and Sarah McKibben have written a really interesting chapter, which just um, harks back to what, what you guys have just been saying about um, these kind of the pluralities of traditions where they read um, 17th century Anglophone um, poetry alongside um, 17th century Irish language poetry. Um, and I mean, it, these are two traditions that exist side by side and, and aren't in conversation at all. But once you read them um, under the lens of, of gender, you see the ways in which they're, they're sort of comparable. They're, um, they're dealing with... Um, kind of this complicated negotiation with a public voice in sort of comparable ways. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I think it was also really interesting to read. Um, to, so once we've kind of taken that sweep through um, the oral tradition and, and from early medieval through the 17th through the 18th centuries, um, later on then to look at the modern poetry and how the modern poetry um, picks up on that oral tradition um, and, and it has a, there's a kind of, um, uh, Daniela Tanova uh, talks about a kind of historical vacuum that they're dealing with, where they're looking back at a time when um, the Irish language and Irish literature um, would have been at its peak, but at the same time they're writing in a moment where it's very much alive and kicking and, um, and how they're kind of negotiating those, those two truths um and and sort of constantly renewing the language out of that um so I, th I think you you see the modern poets differently than once you've once you've sort of read about the the oral tradition in the Irish language I I would just add that if 
in the archipelagic model, if we're hopping between territories, we also hop between different time frames. In uh, my own chapter, which I had great fun mm-hmm. writing, that was you know quite quite a challenge with Biddy Jenkinson writing about the, the Gaelic 16th century in our own county Wicklow. I'm from there too, writing about fake Macula Bird and things like that. And I mean the incredible kind of audacity with which she simply enters that Gaelic world. Uh, writes about having a copy of the, the Bardic book, the Lara Branagh in the car park there in Glenmalure, and then you're you're at the court of Fake McHugh, um, which maybe most people know from that Planksty song from their first album. But, uh, you know, the, the sheer kind of intellectual command uh, that she has over that material, and, and which is, you know, without any question, very obscure. But for me to enter that world was a great adventure and pleasure. It's really interesting. I think we're a couple of minutes before the, our first reading, which nicely feeds off this and it starts with a reading of a, a 17th century poem in Irish. There's one question came from Daniel Clark in the chat, which I think was about how do you balance, and the kind of oral tradition comes into this because it isn't necessarily about individual authors as such, mm-hmm. or about kinds of texts that have been transmitted. How do you balance the sort of grand narrative with a focus on individual kind of canon formation, who's in, who's out? I think that's hopefully Daniela mm. getting at. I mean, that was one of the first questions we grappled with, I think, isn't it, David? Um, and again, kind of coming from this um, this model where you might uh, you might write a history by taking a, a bunch of particular figures and and saying these are the important Irish women poets, and and not wanting to do that. Um, so, I mean, the, the, we try to have it both ways in a way, um, in that we do have some chapters on kind of major poets um, wanting to kind of um, deal with those figures in depth. Um, but then we also have chapters that kind of offer surveys of periods or chapters that take on um, particular um, themes or issues um, that have been really important in, in Irish women's poetry, such as, as Catholicism. I mean, I think a good answer to that would be the um, the long tradition of single poem authors, people who survive in the canon for one single poem, whether short or long. I mean, I think in the case of the Irish language, you have the incredible example of Evelyn Duffney Connell, whose poem, you know, it could sustain a chapter all to itself. But, you know, she's a minor author in the sense of not being a self-conscious professional artist uh, working on her next collection of like for an Arts Council grant. You know, so if you want to follow the model of the, the strong author who will command the canon, well, she just isn't that person. I mean, her work is an accident in you know very important and interesting ways but um if, if you're looking at as somebody anonymous who seems to be an abbess sometime in the 11th century and wrote four lines in, in the margins of a, an illuminated gospel well you know they also they have to have a place to go in a book like this and if it's not a whole chapter devoted to themselves then you know we found i think a framework in which to include all kinds of writing from that all the way up to the, the strong canonical authors and one thing you see all the way through the history is that it's a story of um, of groups, right? It's a story of coteries and collectives and networks and um, women-led publishing presses and all these kinds of ways in which um, groups get together, communities get together and make poetry. Um, that's very powerfully in the book, I think. Thank you. I think we're coming up to the time for the first reading. So... So David's going to um, introduce Karen Yeh, I think. Okay. Well, looking forward to our first uh, featured reading then. Uh, Daniela 
A fan of Val's chapter has been mentioned a couple of times, a chapter on 20th and 21st century Irish language poets, in which Daniela points out that um, this is the first generation of Irish language poets in which women can be uh, seen to comfortably outnumber uh, the men writing. And as Daniela observes, far from having lapsed into a confident, uh, placid post-feminism, this generation has been working very hard to counter the historical silencing that they inherit. And uh, who better among them than Kieran EA, who has been doing so not only through her poetry, but her activism with her generous presence on the scene, having founded REC, the multilingual uh, monthly open mic night in Dublin, and also being the founder of Eric Atchach Gaelach, a collective of LGBT plus Irish speakers uh, in the arts, working to collaborate creatively and reclaim the history of LGBT presence in the Irish language. Now, uh, for us this evening, she is simultaneously going to be, um, well, an ambassador for the Irish language and uh, for uh, the poetry of the past that we've just been talking about, minor uh, and one poem poet from the 17th century called Una Nivrin. Philip Brever, Funavach Granver, Maltaki, Kiranie, Totrock, there he's a Laramorsha, a Latinaka, Dokhet Quega, August Clogus called Bunchamok, for Latinaki in it, Akahariha, a son Legdi Flokta. Over to Kira. This poem is called Ohogus Magrahit Malav Is Magella. And it was written by Una Nivrin around 1670 about her husband, the scholar Sean O'Nachtan. Ohogus Magrahit Malav Is Magella, Ein Ur Awanrit, a Hian Og Inachtan, Erhorla Machorda. Mofortlat ni scarhed, mar barlum se lovlat, na in oris na nangle. Astorach, vain bio, shame roi, go kyam blina, gondada ol, na lone er bit diri, movail er do veilsa, mohoid er do chlevsa, hegeistach do glor glick do hogoch mofienta. Rachi mehain lat gon era gosugoch, egfechen is hegeistach na nain bio gosugra. Cade farlum fain shin, na feast on a curta, a yin raw is a hager, shulme lat, gonjulta. And I'll read the translation as well. Um, this is translated by Louis de Puer. Since I gave you my love, my hand, and my word, once and for all, young Sean O'Nachten, I'll never leave you, in spite of my friends, for I'd rather be with you than dwell with the angels. I could live for a year, I know, my love, not asking for food or drinking a drop, with my mouth on yours, my hand on your heart, hearing your small talk would heal my hurt. I'd make no delay, but go with you gladly, watching and hearing the small birds at play, a hundred times better than courtly banquets. My one love, my strength, I could never refuse. I wrote this poem in response to a series of photographs. Um, it was a project with Pontio University in Wales. Um, and the images in the poem are all taken from the series of photographs. Kind of what I was looking at and what I wanted to write about initially, and then what I was forced to write about, what I was drawn to write about. Lehime Ingwelge e Erdus, August Tiddle, and Fia Sana, Irvarcht. Barista Scriv, Fui Chorib, and Chapuil. Is suivnis natuhia se clapolis bug, na on van in a lee, is a schlinon fin alta, 
Pur maltoch drama, a croman, a cum. Nienta mochri, ni minic arenium, ach musclean a masha, mochocus lum. Is may on curran galli, a soul of elan. Is queen a monocht, gani teavlum. Um, so the title Irvaracht actually comes from Dinin's dictionary and it means the loneliness felt at cockcrow. But in English, I just called it solitude. And I talk about the horse's withers here. That's just kind of the ridge in between the two shoulder braids of the horse. Much easier to detail the horse's thin withers and the tranquil pastures under soft pastel light than the woman in slumber, the poke of her shoulder, her sensual curves and waist so slight. I rarely exhibit my most ardent wishes, but her beauty awakens my aching desire. That crescent moon is me, yearning for fullness, and tonight I'll howl without her by my side. Thank you very much. That was a, a wonderful um, reading of those two poems that you could see spoke to each other in really interesting ways um, and that the past, the Irish language and translation as well, of course, which is something that, that the book also um, covers as well. It's interesting to see somebody translating their own work as well, because um, the politics around that are interesting. <laughs> I'm interested to see the uh, very obvious affinities between uh, the first poem that Kira read there and the poem I just mentioned before, her recording by Evelyn Dove. Yeah. And uh, who, who knows, I mean, whether Evelyn Dove would have been aware of, of that poem, but uh, the way in which you have the, the marriage of the personal, your very personal subject matter, and the inherited conventions of the genre too. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, the question as to how aware early women poets were of each other is a really interesting one, really difficult one. To, to answer. I mean, it would be the same, I think, in Scotland and Wales as well, how far, and it gets back to, to your, you know, discussions in the introduction to the volume about how useful is that idea of tradition and thinking mm -hmm. back through mothers and those kind of Anglo-American kind of paradigms of, of women's literary history. It's a very, very interesting question, but you do see those those kind of kind of resonances and echoes, nevertheless, don't you, that, that, you, that seem unignorable sometimes, which is really interesting. We talked earlier on about the chronological range, and I want now to, to kind of sort of shift to, I, I guess, the sort of more recent parts of the, um, the history of Irish women's poetry and also of, of the volume. Um, I wanted to ask you as editors rather than as kind of scholars, I guess, um, what do you think when you were editing the book how did the chapters that you were reading, what did they show you about the development of women's poetry in, in Ireland, sort of kind of from the 19th into the early 20th century that do you perhaps surprised you or you weren't aware of or reinforced actually what you did know? <laughs> um, well, I'm always interested in um, the question of, of the poet as a public intellectual, right? That the, the poet... Um, as intervening in, in political life. And um, that's definitely a thread that you can see um, coming through that part of the book. Um, so I mean, it, we have a, a chapter from Catherine Jones, um, a kind of sweeping chapter um, that, that looks at the engagement of Irish women poets of the Romantic period with politics. And that's a very kind of um, overt engagement um, and, and a relatively straightforward engagement in a way. 
Um, and then in the in the revival period, again, you have women poets. That's a, that's a kind of um, it's a very fruitful period for women poets. Um, and they are they're kind of um, very much involved in the construction of the nation. And after independence, um, you have this sort of weird situation where um, you have this um, this crew of incredibly um, experimental, innovative, exciting poets um, and they, they're this this weird um, place that they inhabit, where um, modernism is kind of um, seen as dubious, is kind of seen as um, uh, derivative, um, and then also women are, um, are you know, this is a, a culture that kind of valorizes um, the domestic role of women and the reproductive roles. Um, so you have these extraordinary people who are negotiating um, this this problem, and are, are they just find a kind of staggering range of ways to reflect on their own roles and and um, to innovate formally within that situation. So I thought that was that was fascinating, um, and I, I I'm I'm also always interested in um, how Irish women poets are at the forefront of of responses to um, Catholicism in Irish society. I think that that also comes through that they're they're the ones offering the most sophisticated responses. Um, they're they're kind of registering the damage um, that Irish Catholicism is doing, especially to women. But they're also salvaging Catholicism as um, as a kind of crea- as having creative potential and of as of potentially being the source for um, a kind of renewal of, of Irish culture. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, so for me, those are the kind of the exciting threads. Yeah, it's really interesting. David? Well, Alva has just mentioned the uh, inescapable backdrop of, you know, moments of historical political crisis. Uh, but you take a moment like, say, the, the First World War and the, the revolutionary period where history is moving in a certain unignorable direction. But poetry doesn't... Uh, always go in the same direction unanimously. Uh, poets are branching off on all kinds of B-roads off the highways of history. So if you take a, a trio of poets like Catherine Tyne and Winifred Letts, who I think we're going to be coming to soon, and uh, Dora Sigerson Shorter, for instance, you know, their their responses to World War One are very different and you know very anguished in their ways, uh, the ways in which uh, the war because of the Irish contribution should be seen within a kind of more expansive version of Irish nationalism that we're joining in out of solidarity with our you know, brethren in Belgium or whatever, or in the case of Dora Sigerson Shorter living in England, she feels this terrible ambivalence and betrayal even you know, with her uh, relationship with Thomas Hardy going to pot over what he thought of 1916 and uh, the way that she, she almost seems to have died for Ireland, as it were, uh, this uh, self-immolation poetically. And there's just so much to be squeezed out of that, in which we do see, for instance, Matthew can write about that. Uh, and uh, the, the modernist period, which comes after, where again there seems to be um, an established you know, the free state narrative. Then we have the, the B road of Irish modernism, which we were all uh, exhuming around thirty years ago in in the persons of all those male poets. And then he has somebody who's off on an unclassified road altogether, like Frida Lawton, whose death date I think uh, may discovered just in time to go into this book because until very recently she was Peter Lawton question mark you know if she's still alive now at the age of 110 I think she died <laughs> in 1995 we, we now uh, know and you know she also forms such an interesting narrative strand within this book too. That's really interesting and thinking about sort of continuities rather than disruptions when I think about some of the 18th century poets 
that I was working on, that they do make very political comments, but they do it in, in, in very different ways from each other <laughs> um, yeah. sometimes. But also they are politicised, um, but they do it in ways sometimes that are, that are gendered, obviously. So they see things that pertain to, for example, a domestic situation from the relationship with with England and trade and how that affects them as women and how the food that they're trying to put on the table. Um, but they they're certainly are politicised in ways that actually were quite surprising to me because some of the poems I was looking at are very conventional panegyrics to, you know, kind of the vice regents coming into to Dublin court. But actually beneath that, there's there's much more going on. And I think that that's really interesting about that. Ambivalent well. There, and there's such a strong evolutionary sense in, in your chapter of the, the typical Anglo Irish woman poet of that period, who is, of course, the colonial other, but then she increasingly comes to see herself as the explainer of Ireland to the heedless. Uh, the male Britannic presence back in her once home, and that in the in the act of explaining Ireland like that, she becomes more sympathetic and somehow begins to change sides. You know. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's really interesting. And, and thinking then sort of even nearer to us now, um, you know, the book does talk about um, contemporary poetry as well, which is, again, one of the really exciting things about it. It takes us right up um, to the now and thinking beyond the now, as we talked about um, before um, the reading. So, so what does the book suggest as a whole, do you think, about kind of the state of, of Irish women's poetry in, in well, in the now, but also in the last 21 years, is it, of the 20th <laughs> century? And, and what do you think it's going to look like? And I think the last chapter does, you know, adumbrate some mm. um, developments that we see happening already that are very promising and very, very um, new. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that last chapter is so positive. It's so exciting, right? Um, I, I, so that's um, Anwal Hall's chapter. Um, and uh, she she writes about transformative energies, right? She, she talks about um, po how poetry has um, become involved in, um, in social movements and in campaigns for social justice. Um, she writes about experiments with form um, and about um, poetry practitioners um, transforming poetry institutions, right? Um, and, and of course about the aesthetic and political um, vitality of um, poets of, of um, ethnic minority and of migrant backgrounds. Um, so just this kind of explosion of transformation. Um, and she talks about um, one thing that I'm particularly interested in is this kind of um, explosion of uh, long works by women and um, these book length poetic works, um, which there have been a few poets, um, uh, you know, earlier on who have been doing that. But it seems to have really become a thing. Um, these kind of um, long book length works that use just an array of different forms of documentary forms and um, narrative forms and um, dramatic monologues and all, all sorts of things. Um, and I think that's just, I mean, that's just a sign of confidence, isn't it, right? Of, uh, you know, confidence breeding confidence. So that's really exciting to see. I think, I think that, that's a very important point, Alpha. I mean, you know the old joke, it's Michael Longley's joke that somebody says, well, you know, where do palms come from? And his answer is, if I knew that, I'd go there. Well, I think that, that, <laughs> that, that last chapter, it actually, it does go there and it, it really does go over the, the horizon and show um, what what is coming down 
yeah. uh, the pipes, you know, from the future. Yeah. But I think all this transformation that you're talking about, I mean, uh, not least among the items, the things being transformed is the the form of the academic book, as in this book, but also I think of the, the next big generational poetic anthology that might come along. I mean, um, if, if you thought naively that all this activity means we'll, we'll stick a few extra people on the end of the next book of whatever of Irish poetry, those long poems, they don't really lend themselves to that kind of, you know, uh, two or three pages of, of little lyrics that are that size. It suggests that the very form of the Irish poetic anthology would have to be reimagined rather dramatically. And I think that can only be a good thing. That's interesting, yeah. And also the role of the kind of performance spoken voice as well, thinking of Julie Morrissey, mm. for example, you know, and, and how do you then capture that, the performance as sure. well, um, which, yeah. is, which is really interesting. Um, yeah. Rachel Hegarty is now going to, to read a poem um, oh, yes. by Winifred Letts, and she's um, um, also one of her own poems. They're both um, river poems, which I think is really interesting because we've all been kind of really had a, a renewal in our appreciation of nature, I think, in terms of lockdown and our daily walks. Uh, the rivers and in the countryside have been very, very important. So I think everyone's going to really enjoy both of the poems that that that, that, that Rachel reads. Could you tell me something about what, what Winifred Letts adds to your history I think Rachel's going to talk about her context and who she was but what would you I think mean, David you touched on it just 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 now but I wondered if you could kind of summarize either of you well what you know, her she, presence in the book tells us she also was a rather mysterious figure because I did note in reading her again yesterday that in Lucy Collins excellent anthology she's described as being born in Wexford but I think uh, in in our book she's described as being born in, in London was it <laughs> she she moves around we haven't <laughs> known very much about her, but she did live to be around 90, so all kinds of different phases, like a lovely algae for sing, in, you know, very sing-like uh, revivalist style that I was reading. But then uh, side by side, at least this anthology is a poem, a very hard edge poem about a child in a tenement in Dublin and the kind of, you know, vision of poverty there. But then come the war poems and her own particular response to that, uh, the poem about the deserter and, you know, that the mother at home thinking of the child's sacrifice, unaware that the child, that the son has been shot as a deserter and I'm sure that's going to come through strongly in what we're about to hear now all those different strands yeah, um, in, in her chapter Lucy Collins writes about how she um, she's a poet who's formally conventional but who is um, challenging us in how she kind of she shifts sympathies or she she offers um, something other than a singular perspective on on events so she's always challenging us with unexpected tone or unexpected image um, which I think is something um, again a kind of recurring theme in in the book that if if you have a very limited set of categories of what's conventional and what's experimental what's new um, that you're you're going to miss a whole lot of stuff that often women's poetry is challenging in ways that we haven't learned to notice um, so yeah, so I'm going to introduce um, Rachel. Just going to check my notes so I do it right. Um, so so uh, Rachel Hegarty's first book, um, Flight Paths Over Fing Fingless, which came out in 2018. Um, and that was a portrait of um, the working class community in which the poet grew up. And it was kind of um, championed by uh, Paula Meehan, who described it as a joyous and clear-eyed book that draws on and augments the song tradition of an artistically rich area of North Dublin and opens it to the critique and edge of contemporary poetry practice, to the winds of Japan, Boston, Walden Pond, Emily Dickinson's garden. 
We have um, a chapter in the book um, on Paula Meehan by Catherine Kirkpatrick, and she discusses, um, among other things, how Meehan's poetry embraces a public role in recovering and bearing witness to working class lives, but is never only a poetry of kind of one Dublin parish. Meehan's work is rooted in Dublin, but it intersects with ideas and strands in the whole wider weave of world poetry. Um, and I think in this ability to be at once sort of gorgeously attuned to a particular place at a particular moment, but also alert to the wider currents of history and identity, which are intersecting in that moment, Rachel Hegarty is, is one of Meehan's inheritors. And at the same time, her voice is distinctive and joyously so. Um, so Rachel Hegarty's second book um, is one of those um, long form poems that we've just been talking about. Um, it's called May Day 1974, um, and it brings together uh, found poems, sonnets composed from archival documents with ballads to commemorate the people killed in the Dublin Monaghan bombing in, in 1974. And so it's an act of poetic witness and um, a commemoration, but also a protest that humanises um, the people that were killed and um, sort of recovering them from um, becoming anonymous victims. So it's a huge honour um, and a pleasure to have uh, Rachel Hegarty joining us this evening. Hello there, my name is Rachel Hegarty. I come from Fingus in Dublin in Ireland and I am delighted and honoured to be invited here today to help launch a history of Irish women's poetry. Uh, it's a great act of radical recovery that Aylva Darcy and David Wheatley have taken on um, in recovering these Irish women poets and bringing them back to the fore and also to look at living poets as well. But today I'm going to read a poem by the wonderful Winifred Letts, um, who was one of those women who might have been lost to the canon, and, but we're finding her and bringing her back home. I first discovered her uh, when I read a, a book back in my student days um, around the 1919s called Women's Poetry of the First World War. And I remember reading a poem called Oxford Spires um, by this one called Winifred Letts, and I was thinking, who she was when she's at home? So lo and behold, um, she was born to an Irish ma and an English da just outside Manchester. But like me, she spent most of her childhood um, at that space between the River Liffey and Phoenix Park. And uh, she loved being beside the Liffey or by the Irish Sea. Um, so even though she lived to be 90 years old, um, she spent most of her life in Ireland. A very interesting woman, she was a poet, a playwright, a novelist, and she also trained as what they called a medical masseuse, um, what we would call today a physiotherapist, and she spent time in the army camps uh, during World War I, um, nursing the sick soldiers and the wounded soldiers and the mutilated soldiers, and she helped indeed many soldiers who lost limbs in, in those wars. Um, but the poem I'm going to read today is called A Song for Anna Liffia House. Anna Liffia House is an old windmill up beyond Lucan there. Um, as I said, she spent a lot of her time, Winifred, either uh, the Phoenix Park end of the Liffey or the Lucan end of the Liffey, she was happy out. But Anna Liffia House was an old uh, mill house. The water mill went round and ground down uh, the wheat into the flour. Um, so this is about that place and it struck me it's from her collection called uh, More Songs of Leinster, written after the war. And it struck me how much peace and nature is there. So not only was the mill a place of um, 
sustenance for people who are hungry, but any place beside the rivers and nature is also a place of other kinds of sustenance. So here we are. A song for Anna Liffey House by Winifred Letts. Anna Liffey drowses beside the shining weir. The merry river passes, singing all the day. The beaches bend to catch her. Why must you go, my dear? You gleaming, lovely, liffy, so beryl bright and clear. But still, they never hold her. She always slides away, singing, 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 as she turns the wheel. God be with the miller, God be with the mill, God be with the people who have their bins to fill. And God be with the sorry folk who hunger for a meal. Anna Liffey drowses with windows open wide. Great beaches stand as sentries on guard at either side. The heron is watching where the shallows run. The kingfisher passes a jewel in the sun. All day the river murmurs, peace within the hall, peace upon the threshold, peace inside this house. Peace upon the sun and cat and the busy mouse. Peace upon the garden and on the basking wall. The heavy laden fruit trees, the low humming hives. Peace upon the barnyard, the red cock and his wives. That God may smile upon you here and give his peace to all. There she is, the wonderful Winifred Lest. She lived from... 1882 to 1972, 90 years old, absolutely gorgeous. So I was invited to uh, read one of my own poems and I thought I would read a river poem as well um, because I grew up in Finglas beside the River Talca and many days were spent fair isle having adventures by the River Talca. Um, So this poem is from my second collection called May Day 1974. So on the 17th of May, as many people would know, in 1974, we had the Dublin and Monaghan bombings, um, the so-called worst day of the Troubles. By the end of that day, there was 34 people dead. Um, I was on Talbot Street with my ma and my younger brother Daisy when the second bomb exploded. However, the O'Brien family, John O'Brien, aged 24, Anna O'Brien, aged 22, Jacqueline O'Brien, aged 17 months, and Marie O'Brien, age five months, were all on Parnell Street when the first bomb exploded and the whole family was killed. Um, so I wanted to uh, reclaim some of the lives rather than the three sentences they were given in the Baron report and I created ballads for the 34 dead. So uh, this is a ballad for Anna O'Brien. What I miss about Finglas are the trees, the trees by the Talca. The river made the valley and the valley gave us trees. When the priest in Gardner Street drones on, I mouth me prayers like the others. But really, I'd be back by the Talca, walking the trail of trees in me head. I hear me granny's voice soft whisperings over the rattle of rosaries and her telling me, trees never sin. She names off the trees and their markers 
the willow with its weeping limbs, the ash and its papery bark, the oak's sturdy trunk and tiny toppers, and the hazel with its nuts for hungry gaps. When the time comes, I'll show our girls the markers for different kinds of trees. I'll take them to the elder where me and John carved out our names when we was courting. They'll likely laugh at us, Elwins, once young and carve in love on a tree by the Talca. Thanks very much and best of luck with this wonderful new book, A History of Irish Women's Poetry. May it go on and on and on. Thank you. Thank you to Rachel for that wonderful reading and to, to echo her sentiments as well. Um, this is the start of st the start of something, not not the end. And, and and I think what we've been talking about that all the way through, in terms of the 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 contents of the of the, the volume, but also the outward trajectory. I think of, of, of the final chapter at, at the end as well. Um, so uh, I think that was a very fitting tribute to to yeah. not, not to excuse the pun um to to what you've achieved <laughs> in, in the volume and um to you know very 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 moving poems and again the, the connections between the two poems are also interesting as they were with um the previous reading too lots of lots of food for thought there i think now we don't seem to have any questions unless anybody would like oh. to ask our editors, any questions while well, we have them captured in Zoom? <laughs> Didn't foresee this eventually. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> so many comments and congratulations, lots of lovely comments on your achievement. People have really enjoyed the evening. Um, but no questions. We must have been very <laughs> we <must> have covered <laughs> everything <laughs> in what we're saying. I mean, I just have I don't want to spring anything on either of you, but I just to go back to what David was saying while we have time. It's kind of what next, not particularly, not necessarily for you, <laughs> um, but you were talking about the, the next anthology would not look like this. Now, what do you think, I've been editing an anthology myself at the moment, from uh, um, thinking about anthologies, what, what's, what, what do you think is the future for um, anthologies, and particularly an anthology, the next anthology, about um, Irish women's poetry? I wonder, I mean, would it be more of a digital interactive is that is that where you think it's going or or, or just some some ideas I think it was just a very interesting um, kind of proposition you, you set up there David mm. well I, I think that um from a commercial point of view uh, such a book maybe my sense of that book has always been hamstrung by uh, the belief that there would be um such an amount of copyright permissions to pay to Faber and Faber for the <laughs> Davis Heaney and Paul Muldoon that you'd need to reproduce that would be just a, you know, a doomed endeavour. But I think maybe, maybe to follow the, the logic of what I was saying earlier, if you just do um, take that leap off the edge and embrace the condition of the pluralised now and let that work carry the anthology instead, it might be more commercially viable than if you had to pay like half a million pounds to Faber and Faber to make it happen. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think that... Um, one thing that editors of anthologies have not done in the past, it seems to me, is um, to go and ask people 
um, what should be in the anthology. And that, that's something that I would want to do if I was editing anthology, right? Um, I think that's where the mistake gets made is where if you think if you can't see it, it's not there. Um, but if you if you go and ask a load of people to write essays about Irish women's poetry, they show you a whole lot of stuff that you didn't see that was always there. Mm-hmm. So being aware of that, and being able to, to go and ask questions, I think, um, could result in, in a much more interesting anthology. Yeah, Roddy Lumsden did that, didn't he, with uh, that Blood Axe anthology that he, he kind did, of put both of us right. into. You're quite right. And I think that made a massive difference. I mean, um, you know the way... Um, there are well-known poems uh, that their own authors might come to dislike intensely and they might, you know, groan at seeing in print. Uh, but if you have an editor who actually does want to make something creative off the occasion of the anthology and work with the writers mm-hmm. rather than just saying, oh, this, this and this, like, as though you were in a shop, uh, I think that also is an act of creative anthologising. And I think that's I think true. The rewards are there to be reaped. Yeah, absolutely. Some of this, like, the, the poet that I talk about in my chapter, Catherine, briefly Catherine Phillips because I think that the chapter before that talks about more and more extensively she's been heavily anthologized and kind of anthologies on early modern women's poetry but it's always the kind of royalist poems or the poems of female friendship it's never been the poems about Ireland or her poem on the Welsh language Mm. so I guess my question is if you if there were to be a more conventional anthology would the experience of editing this volume shift how you might think about about which bits of the poet's work to put in. Um, because in the anthology I'm doing, we're deliberately choosing things that talk about place and locality rather than the kind of set piece poems. And some of the some of the people are obscure, so there wouldn't be those set pieces, but sometimes there are those set pieces. And I think the interesting point about the long poem as well, and how, what, what do you do with that when that actually becomes a kind of cultural phenomenon, if you like, um, how do you then anthologize that? I mean, the, the, you know, sort of the dreaded extract that all of us who've taught poetry are kind of dread in a way, but sometimes it of necessity have to use in terms of teaching as well, because one of the things I think is really heartening about this is how how do how does this affect the next generation of critics and scholars as well people who want to work on Irish women's poetry from whatever particular period and and how this might shape their perceptions and might shape how we teach the material as well yeah well I don't know how far along the road you are with the anthology I know that has been emerging from your your own scholarly work uh, but I think, you know, we've, if were such a project to happen, the, the groundwork has been laid for it. I mean, somebody's got to do it at some point. I mean, as far as using it for teaching is concerned, I hope that with the large numbers of people who have tuned in to listen to us tonight, uh, uh, there seems to be enough of a groundswell to get this book into an affordable paperback too, so more people, including students, can read it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any thoughts? Um, um, I mean, I think that certainly was, um, like, doing the project was partly for for the person that I was for me anyway um as a as a kind of young poet and as a a young scholar and and thinking well I might have made different decisions about what um what work I studied and what work I wrote about if if things had been if there'd been easier access to the whole of Irish literature because you tend to go with what's what's easy what's easily on the shelf mm-hmm. so so yeah I do I hope that the project um uh, does change how you know what can be used in the classroom um what what's used kind of under pressure um 
Um, I can't remember what you asked in the first place about the anthology. Oh, I was just going to say that um, there's, a, there's an anthology, um, Stairs and Whispers, which is an anthology of um, poetry of disability. And it's um, it's a it's a conventional book, but it also it, it comes accompanied with um, uh, video poems online and um, a full recording of the book, uh, audio recording. And um, and one of the things that happened when that book was put together was that sort of new work was um, uh, triggered by by the need to kind of produce the poetry in different forms and had a kind of creative effect on on the poets participating. Um, so I thought that was cool and <laughs> just throw it out there. I think, um, yeah, if you were, if you were trying to do honor to the poetry of the now in, in the Irish, um, poetry, I think you, you'd want to do that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think it's, um, especially also in terms of the early poetry as well, that, that, that was spoken and composed, not written, yes. composed and that's yes. song, lots of songs, particularly in Scottish Gaelic tradition, there's the song it's really, really important and ballads as well and how oral kind of um, poems are passed, are passed on and to how do you kind of get that across? And I think the kind of audio element is is, is, is really <laughs> important and maybe for translation as well. I mean, one of my fantasies was that you could have this kind of online interactive anthology whereby you could sort of read the Irish and listen to it in English or read the English or whatever. Um, so you could, so you weren't just kind of reading the English translation if you didn't have Welsh or, or Irish or, or that would for me would be really interesting as well for the early um, poets but maybe for, for the late poets too but I think there was one question just I think is really great to finish on which is um, no pressure plans for a sequel oh my god <laughs> what, what would the sequel be <laughs> not an anthology another editor <laughs> given how fast the field's moving maybe you have enough material in a couple of years yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another history of Irish women's poetry. <laughs> Secret history of yes. <laughs> Great. Thanks ever so much. And, and and we're coming to the end now of of, of, of this evening's um event, which um I've certainly found hugely enjoyable and really enjoyed chatting um, to, to uh, um, Albert and David. And so I want to congratulate you again for such a, a brilliant achievement. It really is groundbreaking and hopefully it will change how we think about Irish women's poetry, how we teach it, how we respond to it, the kind of um, poets that we read, um, poets that we may not have heard about that will now go and look them up and buy their books and, and read them as well, because it seems to me that's the, the end of great criticism is that people actually want to go and read the poetry and it's one of the really great things about this volume as well that there's so many detailed readings of the poems themselves it's not just kind of summary and I think that's one of its richness the richness of it and it's and it's real strength so we did want to say something about where you might buy the she said tantalizingly holding up <laughs> <laughs> and of course all good bookshops the best of which of course is in Molly um, mm. but I think there's been problems with distribution so if you were really keen to get it straight away I think the the website um Albert did you want to say yeah that's right um Cambridge University Press website um are offering 20% off um and the secret code is Darcy21 so that's uh, very memorable and yeah if you just plug that in you'll get your 20% off it is a very expensive book at the moment um but like David said we're hoping um that there's so much interest in it that we will um be able to produce an affordable paperback yeah, let's hope so. And I think um, the link's just been dropped in the chat there. Um, by Magic. Laura. Thanks very much for that. 
So thank you again, and thank you very much again to Denise Hanrahan and the Embassy and the Consulates General, all to the team at Molly. Thank you for your technical expertise. Everything went very smoothly. And thank you to everyone who joined us. It's a shame we can't see you, but when the next, <laughs> when the next volume comes out, we'll see everybody in person. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you.